0: Welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Paris Jackson, the host of Crosscut Now on KCTS 9, and the host for this podcast. Today we are talking about one of a few syndicated broadcast television shows airing today, Jeopardy!, a remnant of television Americana going strong some 60 years later. This conversation took place in May with Jeopardy! co-host Ken Jennings and journalist Peter Kafka at the Crosscut Ideas Festival. Jennings shares the long-standing legacy of the American game show, his fascination with trivia as a child, and how he went from computer programmer to 74 consecutive wins on Jeopardy! to now the current co-host. Kafka and Jennings delve into how the show has changed from decades ago when Jennings first won as a contestant. Jennings says many of the new breed of Jeopardy hopefuls benefit from social media, where there's a thriving community of Jeopardy fans and prospective contestants. But he also says the game show is dealing with present day challenges. In an entertainment world more and more dominated by streaming platforms, how does Jeopardy continue to find its audience? And what is the future? of syndicated television. You'll soon learn how the show may be turning into a sport and what lengths producers are willing to go to address those questions about its future. I hope you enjoy this insightful conversation. Please share your feedback on the podcast with us by sending it to talks at crosscut.com. Now let's get into it.
1: Morning.
2: We decided we would switch it up and Ken is going to ask me the questions. It's kind of my day job. Oh wait, that's not true. I say the answers, they say the questions. I don't, I don't know how my own show works, apparently. Oh, You guys will have
1: a chance to ask your own questions. And there's a part of my script where I'm going to tell you all about that. So I'm going to go with the script for a second. Uh, my name is Peter Kafka. I'm the host of Recode Media. That is the podcast that focuses on the intersection of tech and media. When I'm not doing that, I make other content over at Vox.com. That's V-O-X. Uh, I've interviewed all kinds of folks in my life. I have never interviewed a professional game show contestant before. <laughs> so we're going to fix that. Um, we're not going to talk to any old game show contestant, but the most famous, Ken Jennings, became a household name by reeling off 74 consecutive Jeopardy! wins in 2004. He has turned those wins into a career. It's still running today. He's the co-host of Jeopardy! Welcome, Ken. Thank you for having me. <clears throat> Delighted to be here. I'm gonna ask you some mechanical questions about how Jeopardy! works, but I wanna start big picture first. If you weren't the guy who won 74 consecutive wins on Jeopardy! and was now the co-host, what were you going to do
2: as a career? I think about that a lot, actually. I was, uh, I was always a real trivia nerd as a kid. These quiz kids, know-it-all kids, tend to come out of the womb like that, I think. Like clutching a copy of the Guinness Book of World Records. Super popular. That they had in you, and of course, popular with the ladies. I love that. Uh, I mean, that's what happens. At some point, you hit the, the Judy Bloom age where you're like, oh, it is not a hit with girls to know Captain Kirk's middle name. And, and as a result, I kind of went into the trivia closet for, I don't know, over a decade. And, you know, never really thought, hey, uh, you've got a weird associative memory kind of a brain. What do you do with that? I went into computers because it seemed like that was the future. Born and raised here? From here, yeah, we moved overseas when I was a kid. Uh, I went to kindergarten through first grade here in Seattle, and then used to come back here in the summers, but we were living in, in South Korea for most of the 80s. And um, like by my mid-20s, I was a computer programmer, and not a particularly talented or happy one, having a bit of an early midlife crisis. My wife says I was always coming home from work with some new scheme. What if I take the foreign service exam, and we move to Gabon, or you know. Law school, even, who knows? Uh, and instead, just on a whim, I tried out for a game show. So I guess there's a universe where I'm a mildly unhappy software developer. You'll just be grinding it out, complaining about yeah. back to
1: work. Probably still binging
2: office. Atlanta uh, and uh, Reservation Dogs. Like I'm sure my TV life doesn't change much, but I think my career would be very different. So you hit this run
1: in 2004, and I remember I was not an avid Jeopardy uh, watcher. Then. What? But then. <laughs> But I remember your name. It was a big deal. Um, did you think, wow, this is amazing? And once I'm done with this, I'm going to go back to being an unhappy computer programmer? Or do you think yeah. I'm going to turn this into something else?
2: It was a crazy roller coaster ride, but I never had any sense that it was sustainable. Part of me still doesn't, actually. <laughs> like, I, uh, like my wife and I had a bet, you know, I had had won maybe 40 or 50 shows before any of them started to air. So we knew there was a fun thing that was going to happen in our lives and maybe I was going to go on Letterman. But like I didn't think it was any kind of a life changing thing. And uh, we had like a bet on how many people would ever recognize me like at Costco lifetime. And I thought the over under was like 10. I was like, yeah, nobody cares who's on Jeopardy. This will last a few weeks, and then something will happen on Fear Factor, and nobody will remember me anymore, and and that's fine.
1: So, how, so at what point do you go, oh, this is a thing, and was it something where you were actively trying to extend the half-life of that fame? Were there people coming to you with proposals? Did you have to think about how to manage that, or did you sort of back into it?
2: Yeah, I never had like a five-year plan, but somebody did ask if I wanted to write a book, and I kind of did. I was like a frustrated English major in college who switched to computers when, I think when I heard the joke, uh, the old joke, what's the difference between an English major and a large pepperoni pizza? The, the pizza can feed a family of four. I, I think that's when I, that's when I became a computer science double major. Um, and so like, yeah, I'd like to write a book. I don't know what that would be, but that seems like an interesting challenge, more interesting than the Java apps I'm writing at work. Um, so I took a leave of absence from my software company and started to work on the book, and that just kind of snowballed, and I'm still on leave, I guess. They have not called me in a while. But
1: <laughs> the, I think a lot about the, for, for professionally, I think about how the media landscape has changed. This happened to you in 2004. The internet existed then. We'd already gone through the, the first web bubble, but for most people still, the internet is something you got to through AOL, You know, maybe a browser. There's social really media doesn't no social exist, which media. is very
2: important if you're a Jeopardy! contestant. Much better time to, to be a, a, a rando on TV before before Facebook and Twitter. Do you think about
1: what happens if you go through that run now, if you just transport yourself 20 years ahead and how your career plays out differently um, in 2023 as opposed to doing this back in 2004?
2: Well, I see it now firsthand with our... You know, we've had some high-profile super champs lately. James Holtzauer five years ago, Amy Schneider last year. These are all people who have the same kind of roller coaster summer that I did in 2004. But they're now trying to do it in the age of social media and all the kind of soul-killing aspects of that—the harassment and whatever, um, the addictions and. Uh, And there's also also a way for people
1: to reach their people
2: too. Exactly. Like, uh, and you know, preparing for jeopardy has changed very much in the age of the internet. Um, there's now an online archive that has hundreds of thousands of jeopardy clues from past games and people will literally build flashcard decks or build simulators in their houses where they can kind of drill themselves on jeopardy like a Rocky movie montage. So in the, in the past, it was kind of a thing you would do as a lark. Hey, uh, you know, I like to annoy my friends at Bar Trivia, like I'll I should try out for Jeopardy. And now you've that's you know, kind of been professionalized a little bit.
1: we were talking backstage. It's amazing that Jeopardy is as big as it is today in a world where attention is fractured, where everyone can seek out their own stuff. It's a it's a
2: syndicated broadcast TV show. That's that's a dead, dying medium, right? Like yeah, the fact that syndicated broadcast TV still exists. It would be like telling an alien that hee-haw is still a big hit or something.
1: So can, we, were, we were trying to figure out the actual audience.
2: We think it's around nine-ish million per episode? Yeah, it's, you know, it's the most watched thing on TV, basically, that's not the NFL. You know, no, nothing's really bigger than Jeopardy or Wheel unless it's got a quarterback, which is insane that this is the, now the last remnants of American monoculture. Why does it work? It's largely a legacy. Uh, don't get me wrong, I love the show, and we put on a good show every night, but we have 60 years of goodwill, if you go back to Art Fleming, Uh, and if you just do the Alex Trebek years, that's 1984. That's almost 40 years of people, not just um, kind of being vaguely aware that Jeopardy exists because it's in Groundhog Day, but like people who make it an appointment. Like People, you hit an age in America where you make Jeopardy part of your evening. You know, it, it might as well be a meal. And so the, people watch it with a sense of ritual. The way they used to with Ed Sullivan or Carson, it's just the last thing right, the like The late that. night
1: hosts are going through the same discussion and sort of right. existential question. It's not exactly your problem, but it kind of is. because you're making
2: It kind the of is. Doing it. And we're the last man standing, really, because there's no more Cronkite. There's no more Carson. There's no more agreed upon. There's SNL and there's that Jeopardy wheel hour. And and that's about it. And it's a sense of, tradition. you know, people watch it with, all the all that baggage all the good memories of watching it with dad or grandma or in the dorms in college or you know whatever those decades of of goodwill they have with the show how do you think about
1: balancing the tension between wanting to keep those loyal fans who are seeking you out in a world where it's not easy to find you with maybe the theoretical hope of bringing in new people who didn't grow up with this? Or do you say, you know what, we've got an existing audience and that's what we're sticking with. We want to make them happy first and foremost.
2: It's a creative question and it's a commercial question. From a commercial standpoint, uh, Jeopardy, because it's syndicated, does not have uh, corporate overlords. I mean, it does. It's got Sony. But like it's we're beholden to 100 affiliates all over the country. And if Dayton is nervous that the ratings are down, we need to put out a fire in Dayton. Um, so it's a very being in a syndicated TV, you, you know, you're serving a hundred masters, and they do not want other ways to see jeopardy, you know, They don't everybody under forty five wants to see Jeopardy streaming. But guess what? The people who run our affiliates in Houston and Philadelphia do not want Jeopardy streaming because you know we're the only reason people are watching these these affiliates in Houston and Philadelphia. I tried watching on
1: Hulu this morning before I came over. they nope, do not want me watching old episodes. Right.
2: And then there's the creative problem of loyal fans who watch it for a sense of ritual. Like a, a game, the game of Jeopardy that will be on Monday will be largely identical, almost down to the second, as a game in. Nineteen ninety-four, or ni- even nineteen sixty-four. Um, you know, hardly the, the clues are not cardboard anymore, like they were for Art Fleming. Um, but except for that, people expect it to feel exactly the same, almost down to the second every night. And you want to try to figure out how to hone the format to draw in new audiences. But you've got a recalcitrant group of. Uh, of, uh, what should we say? I, don't, I was going to say diehards. What's Loyal the Loyalists, fans. loyalists.
1: How loyalists. about that? So it's, I So I can, I can sense some of the frustration. Um, what's something you'd like to do when someone says, no, that's too wild?
2: Even the smallest of cosmetic changes. Uh, it was announced yesterday, that, you know, we got a primetime tournament coming up on ABC in May. We're gonna invite back James Holtzauer and Amy Schneider and some of our, our most talented recent champs. And we decided to add one little cosmetic Philip, which is that uh, we're gonna show viewers at home in advance where the Daily Double is. Because we noticed that there's a lot of suspense in studio, because we know where, and you know, somebody who needs it will be heading right for it. Oh no, they veered away, and they picked the wrong category. When ESPN transform poker, they show you the whole card. It's exactly that, yeah. And you you can always look away if you prefer surprise to suspense, I guess. But you know, somebody saw that on the internet yesterday, and now I've got Jeopardy fans angry that we are, in their words, putting lipstick on the Venus de Milo, or... or, uh, (laughs) by telling people where the Daily Double is 90 seconds early. It doesn't affect gameplay at all, but they're traditionalists. Do you guys talk
1: backstage about sort of a a tipping point where you're going to have to say, look, we cannot be managing a declining asset. We have to figure out ways to grow this thing, or else we'll be talking to a very, very tiny audience.
2: I mean, obviously, yeah, that's a number one concern, is how do you make sure that uh, Jeopardy! continues to find the audience that it has? For generations, and there's also the question of uh, you know just prognosticating what is the future of syndicated television. I I think it's no longer not a when does that change or if you know will that change, but now it's like how many weeks notice will we have when that collapses? so, I'm not going to say television is looking for lifeboats, but we're certainly looking for yeah, I mean, alternatives. The, the broadcast
1: networks are talking
2: about giving up one of their hours of prime time and just saying, well, you guys have it. We, yeah, this is not a secret. that the, the, the TV that Gen X and UP grew up with is is not the same and not coming back. All right. So, this is kind of your problem, but there are also producers and people right. who own the show and kind of their problem. It's, it's it's way above my pay grade, and maybe I'll get a phone call about something I've said here. But <laughs> well, You spend a lot of time thinking about it. So, let's
1: talk about know. the actual work you do. What What is the hardest part of your job? And how is it different than being a contestant in terms of the demands placed upon your psyche, your brain, your body?
2: Hosting is incredibly difficult. I mean, being a contestant is stressful. There's no two ways about it. You're seeing people, every, three people every night on Jeopardy who have basically just picked up their sport that morning and are going to try it on national TV. You know, like imagine you're watching the Olympics and the pole vaulters have just tried out the pole that morning. Yeah, I'll give this a go. Like that's kind of what Jeopardy is: three, three amateurs giving it a shot. Uh, and so as a result, what seems like a very kind of relaxed, cerebral thing on TV is an intense gladiatorial gauntlet for the contestants. It's like suddenly you're in Tron and you're on the backside of the screen, and you realize that uh, you know you're in the light cycle now, and it's it's life and death. Um, so c- contestants, uh, you know, have that's an adjustment. It's very intense. But hosting's hard too. Like Alex just made it look easy for 38 years. Uh, he was just so smooth and so graceful, unflappable that I think people got the impression that that's an easy job. And as a result, when we had a series of guest hosts a couple years ago, we would have different kinds of journalists coming in, thinking, "Yeah, yeah, I do. I do one of these on weekends all the time. I'll just read the prompter." And they were all, you know, Anderson Cooper's been in war zones. You know, Katie Couric has done live interviews with every world leader, and you know, pe- even people like that were like whoa, like Jeopardy is kind of its own beast. Um, the game moves very fast, 61 clues in a half an hour is a lot. The hard part is that the same person, the host, is not just, uh, you know, you're, you're, kind of, you're doing everything. There's one person, you're the referee, you're kind of adjudicating things in real time, you know, with the help of a table of judges, but a lot of that is on the host's shoulders. But you're also the booth team, you're also uh, play-by-play and color commentary for the folks at home. Um, And you're a host, you know? Fundamentally, you're trying to be a welcoming presence for these three very nervous contestants. So you start off life as a computer
1: programmer, you become a Jeopardy winner. How do you become a Jeopardy host? Do you train, is there training for that? How do you learn how to do all that?
2: I am not a broadcaster, obviously. Like, uh, no training for it. And so for years, people would say, hey, when Alex packs it in, you ever think about hosting Jeopardy? Like, as if that's a thing I could just decide to do. Like, yeah, I've decided I'll become the host of Jeopardy. And I would always say, no, that's insane, you know? no." no television show is just going to no successful television show will just hand the reins to a non-broadcaster this is not charlie and the chocolate factory you know they're not they didn't run this thing for 40 years hoping the one lucky boy would inherit the factory you know uh, and so nobody's more surprised than me that they gave a non-broadcaster a shot but i guess it turned out to be a a, a tactical question can you teach a, a a broadcaster jeopardy or can you teach a jeopardy person I mean, you've got a gift to gab, right? You're, you're good at that, Was that something you always had? You mean? Jeopardy's a real good cure for stage fright, I would say. Like, nothing in your life will ever have the, pr- like, I just walked out here, and if this is entertaining, that's great, and if it's not, I'm still gonna go home after and nothing changes. On Jeopardy, you get one chance, and maybe you're gonna win a $30,000 check, and if you're $1 short, you go home with lovely parting gifts. You know, it's a very unforgiving field. You get one bite at the apple. And it's nerve-wracking, and I find that since that day, I am not nervous in any situation, because it's always <laughs> better than Jeopardy. And do you, do you, <laughs> did you approach it like, well, all right, there
1: is no boot camp for this. I'm going to teach myself. I'm going to study game tape. I'm going to study Alex. I'm going to
2: study other shows. Studying Alex was kind of the key. Like, Luckily, I had seen him do it up close in person you know, for probably nearly 100 hours, and then I'd been watching him since I was 10 years old. You know, living overseas, all we had was armed forces TV, uh, which meant me and all my friends had one channel at all times. Imagine a world, if you will, with no streaming, like no no cable, no VHS even in 1984. I think we didn't have a, a tape player yet. So me and all my friends would run home every day to watch whatever the army put on. And for whatever reason, the Pentagon put Jeopardy on after school. So like Alex Trebek kind of raised me. And it was always a, like Jeopardy was like a safe space where smart kids were being, rewarded for that and celebrated for that. Did you, did you do it in the living room? Did you pretend you were Alex in the living room? You know, I did play game show host as a kid. Uh, like when I was like six or seven years old, my parents gave me one of these blackboards for Christmas, you know, thinking I would draw. And instead I would draw the Family Feud board and make everybody play Family Feud. <laughs> So, so you're like
1: one of the super athletes that's always kicking a ball against the wall or a d- drummer who's banging on stuff from, you, you had this in your genes. But
2: self-taught, like I'm an outsider artist. Mm-hmm. You know, like I don't have any actual training. I'm Daniel Johnston being like, I'm going to record an album, you know, I, and, and I really did kind of have to learn on the fly. But luckily, I had seen Alex do it and he, he kind of perfected the art. What of was it.
1: The, the thing, that, the habit that was hardest to learn or to break?
2: The thing I was surprised about was how little Alex did. Like the light touch, I think, is really important. You know, he would always say, "The game's not about the host; it's about the clues and the players." He was never announced as the star of Jeopardy the way his predecessor had been. He was always the host of Jeopardy because he was like, "I'm, I'm not the star. The game's not about me." You know, like imagine anybody in television saying that today. You have to, you have to be a, you know, a gentlemanly Canadian from the 1930s, I think, to to think about TV that way. Uh, but he, he was absolutely right. You watch tape of him, and he is doing the least amount of work possible. Not out of laziness, but just out of economy. Like, even the verbiage, you imagine him saying something like, all right, you're in third place, uh, Gordon. Now you've seen the categories. Go ahead and select for us. And often it's just like, Gordon, go. And the show works just great and has a real punch and an energy. Do you watch game tape of yourself? I hate to, but it helps. Yeah. Because, you know, the things that annoy you about your performance are exactly why you should be watching that tape. We'll be back with more after this.
1: At Amazon, there's a way up for anyone because there's something for everyone. Like Jessica, who completed free technical training programs and is getting her bachelor's with Amazon's prepaid tuition.
0: Even if you have no knowledge or no experience in IT, Amazon has the tools and the resources to teach you. I've been promoted three times and it's been a significant boost in pay for me.
1: Free technical training programs at Amazon move full-time and part-time employees into higher paying jobs. Visit aboutamazon.com for more info. When you won that 74 consecutive streak, that was an anomaly, right? Obviously it's the record, but you didn't have a lot of people going on long streaks and now it seems like it happens quite often. People are rattling off 10 wins in a row. Did something change in the game? Did something change in the way people train
2: for the game? There's like a decade-long string around, I don't know, 2006 to 2016 where like nobody wins more than 10, basically. And I'm thinking, this can be done. I know this can be done. You know, there, there is a plateau where if you hit it, the returning champion's got some advantages. You know, you're less nervous, um, you've done it a few times, your timing's getting better, and yet they're bringing in fresh meat off the truck every day. You know, pe- people who are as dazed as you were on your first day. Um, so I was like, there's got to be a plateau where these long streaks are possible. And we've seen quite a few in recent years. We've had a, a 40, a 38, Mateo was a 23. You know, we, we had like three or four really long streaks last year alone. And we don't know if we fully understand so it could be randomness, what's happening there. It could
1: be It's a small sample are, size. Yeah. could
2: be chance. But I think a lot of it is what you say, that people now, you know, we're in the money ball era where the old techniques have been shown to be superstitious, suboptimal, now people know there is a way to train for Jeopardy. There's a smarter way to wager. You know, you can spend an afternoon and become a perf- mathematically perfect Jeopardy wagerer, and yet people go on the show for a lark and, and just bet wrong, because they haven't really studied the odds. So the premise of Moneyball, right, is, oh, you, th- you know, stats that you used to think were important are less
1: important. It's more important to get on base than yeah. to get a hit. What is the Jeopardy equivalent of Moneyball?
2: The Jeopardy equivalent is that, you know, uh, on base percentage is daily doubles. Um, you know, We always think about the game going down to Final Jeopardy, like that's the climactic moment. But in fact, to win a long streak, you gotta eliminate error. You know, historically, Final Jeopardy conversion's around 50%. You do not wanna put your game in the hands of 50% conversion. What you wanna do is put the game away earlier. Um, daily double conversion's around 80% historically. What you want is big wagers on daily doubles so that by the time Final Jeopardy arrives, you have doubled up on the competition and you're out of reach. And so when you watch James Holtzauer start at the bottom of the board, build up a, a war chest, hit a daily double, bet it all, he's demoralized the opponents, like the game's over by the first commercial. Um, that's Moneyball. So we just saw baseball this year, I'm not a huge baseball fan, but I've read
1: about it, they've, they've changed the rules to counteract the Moneyball stuff. Yeah. They took over, they got rid of the shift. shift, where you put all the players in the outfield on one side and it looked ridiculous. Um, and things to make The game go faster and people complained about it and it seems like it's working. We talked earlier about the fact that people don't want any shift in their game at all. Have you guys talked about tweaking the game to counteract the, the Moneyball aspect?
2: Hypothetically, I don't know how serious this is, because as I say, changes to the format are anathema to a lot of Jeopardy viewers. But like, just speaking purely for myself here, like there are things you could do. Um, daily double placement is not random. Uh, humans look at the board and decide which clues and categories have the best daily double vibe. You know, it's a clue that might take you a little longer to figure out, might be a moment of drama. Um, so because a human is placing that, it's not random and contestants know where to look for them. They generate heat maps of where daily doubles are like you would for a pitcher or a, or a batter. And that's why they have an un- so we, you know, we could randomize daily double placement better. Um, Wait, so
1: there are contestants at home putting together heat maps?
2: Heat maps doubles? of Daily Double Finding, yeah. And the funny thing is, it works. Like you watch Jim Soltzauer play, and he can kind of look. I don't know what his method is, and he won't tell me for you know reasons of trade secre- trade secrecy, I guess, but something about either the category spread or position on the board. He has an amazing sense of intuition and you for must where be they like, are. I did this pure man. I did this before <laughs> heat maps. Yeah, it's all these guys chugging protein drinks and stuff, and I'm like, whatever. Like I didn't have a gym. I was like dragging a side of beef through the hills. We didn't, there was not even, when I was on in 2004, you could not look up past Jeopardy clues. There was no online archive. There was one woman who had been on the show a couple years earlier, and she was like, just painstakingly typing in every game on a blog where she talked to her parrot. So like, every Jeopardy game was there, but it was as a dialogue between this woman and her parrot. And I went through 150 games this way, because this was all we had in the stone age. When someone's
1: on one of these runs, which are now more common, but still, by definition, rare, does that create a different dynamic backstage? Is everyone sort of excited? Or is it like, um, again, like in baseball where it's a no-hitter, you don't want to say it out loud? How does that
2: change what's going on vibe-wise? you know, when I was on, I now know that everyone was terrified. They had just changed the rule. It used to be you got five wins, and then they gave you a car and kicked you out, and you were back for the tournament of champions. And a few months after I had tried out for the show, they changed this rule. So by that, that's the accident that changed my life, basically, is that I happened to try out right before they changed that rule and got on right after. Um, so they were terrified. They have got, they've got 50 games of me in the can, and what if America hates this uh, like annoying kid. What if this is the thing that ruins Jeopardy? Um, the games were not close. At that point, they did make a few changes, kind of like uh, you know eliminating the shift or widening the lane in basketball for Will Chamberlain. They they started to give the challengers more of a warm up every morning on the buzzer to try to level the playing field a bit. And we do that to this day. It's it's a good move. Um, today, when we have a long run. Uh, you know, at first we're a little nervous because, you know, what could happen? You know, people could love this uh, player, people could hate this player. You know, we don't know what it's gonna do to the perception of the show. But what we do- people people...
1: hate, there are people who go on runs that are unpopular with- with, with Yeah, I think,
2: um, you know, I mentioned James Holtzauer, best player of his generation, very divisive. Um, You know, hard-bitten poker player, sports gambler, um, enjoys kind of playing up the, he's a pro wrestling heel angle a bit. and the fact is, you know, Jeopardy viewers that's the person are- person uh, you want
1: to tune in to see get knocked off, right?
2: I mean, that's the thing. We don't mind anymore. And we, you know, whether, you know, love them or hate them, we know that people tune in for long streaks now, so that we're not nervous about that. And we've learned that they always lose. They seem invincible, and then something goes wrong. A missed daily double, uh, you know, some fluke thing will happen, and that invincible player uh, will be gone and, again, it's one to a customer in Jeopardy.
1: Does it change your performance? Or are you actively sort of like, oh, we've got a streak going here, I need to be aware of it, play into
2: it? It's exciting for the host. As, you know, the, the long-running players are actually more relaxed and able to have fun with the game. That's why the tournaments are a lot of fun. You know, Jeopardy Master's coming up in May. We've got six players who, you know, some of them have 50, 60 Jeopardy games under their belts. They are very comfortable out there. They are not the nervous people you see every night in bad sweaters telling stories about their cats in, you know, in amazingly uh, <laughs> unfunny ways. No, these are people who know what they're doing. And so there's a lot of interplay and, and uh, rivalry, and that's a lot of fun. And so the host can feed on that energy.
1: My, my producer, Travis, who is a hardcore Jeopardy person, tells me that it's well known that at the level of the people who are playing on your, on your game, that everyone knows the answers. Everyone has sort of the equivalent knowledge base and the real competition is buzzer-based, that it's, it's reflexes and hitting the buzzer. Is that
2: true? There's a lot of truth to that. You know, everybody has passed a very hard test to be there. But it turns out I've been overstating that for years. We have started, bec- you know, because we are now treating Jeopardy as a little more of a serious sport with playoffs and so forth, we started publishing advanced statistics, which sports fans like. And one of the things we now publish is buzzer attempts. So you can see a box score where you know how many people are buzzing. And one thing we've learned is that the players who do well are not just... Players who knew the same number of responses but had a slightly better timing, although timing is huge. We found that these people tend to be buzzing, you know, 10, 15 times more per game than their competition. So, but the bu- I think on many nights, the buzzer is the thing that. that How do you get better at buzzing? Buzzer's hard. You can't press the button as soon as you know it. You have to wait. For the host to finish reading the question. And then at that point, a staffer somewhere flips a switch, activates the buzzers, a little light goes on to the side of the game board that the home viewers can't really see. And then you know you can buzz. In my experience, if you wait for some people wait for the lights. My experience, if you wait for the lights, you get beat. You're trying to anticipate the you know, wait for the last syllable of the clue, ba da but da ba da the capital of Egypt. Boom. You know, there's like a there's like a discernible one-syllable pause, and then you go. Um, but some days you have it and some days you don't. It's like golf or a golf swing or a, a baseball batter.
1: And you're like in professional esports, right? You, you age out when you're 18 yeah. or something, right? It's, it's young people with really hyper fast reflexes. That is not the case in Jeopardy, obviously. It's not speed, it's
2: rhythm. You know, we have a 62-year-old uh, player named Sam Buttry who nearly, you know, he was in the finals of the Tournament of Champions last year. Jeopardy viewers loved him because he's a white-haired Steve Martin type. and they. You know, they're used to these young hotshots. Um, but he had kind of an odd buzzer technique. I think he might do this, but he was right on the money. You know, it's, it's not age. I feel like you can age out of the knowledge side. Often our best players are right around 30, and I honestly think it's generational. Like, that's the age where you still remember your parents' trivia, but you haven't stopped listening to pop music yet. You know, like, like you know, right now, like, you're, you're aware of M.A.S.H., and you're aware of Lizzo. You know, like, you've got this, you've got some 50-year span there and you, know, you turn 40 and you start to, you know, at 20 you've, you don't have the one end yet, at 40 you've lost the other end.
1: Talk about how much you guys are spending, how much time you guys are spending trying to increase diversity both on screen and in ty- the types of questions, so you do find you are reaching people with different knowledge bases. How, how important is that to you, one way or the other?
2: It's a big area of emphasis right now because historically, Jeopardy's had a very hard time getting a contestant mix that looks like America. For many years, our problem was getting women to try out for the show. Um, and it, wasn't, it had nothing to do with skill level. You know, it turned out when we saw the test results, uh, you know, our, our women uh, auditioners were just as good as the men. It largely seemed to come down to confidence and specifically to a very specific kind of unearned male confidence where uh, men who watch Jeopardy think, yeah, I could do that. You know, it's the same kind of guys that are like, I bet I could beat Serena Williams for a few points. You know, it's like, like the, the utterly unearned, uh, uh, average American male sense of, uh, sense of superiority. And we solved that problem largely by going to online auditions. You know, by taking away the performative aspect and just saying, "Hey, uh, go to our website and, and just for funsies, try out for Jeopardy." Uh, we were able to really address the, the gender imbalance and who was trying out for Jeopardy. Um, you know, for, for more uh, you know racial and ethnic diversity, that's something as you say you, you can address on the contestant outreach side. And we think we're going to have to be aggressive about actually like creating channels for people to get on Jeopardy. You know, how does player development work? If Jeopardy's a sport, you're not just gonna wait for the good athletes to come to you. You wanna have a system where you find these talents. And I think that's what's next for, next is for that, Jeopardy. Is that actually happening or is it a thing you imagine is gonna it's, to happen? It's conver- conversations we have definitely had. You know, If you're gonna treat this as a sport with playoffs and stuff, you're gonna need a pipeline of great players or the game fails. Nothing's worse on Jeopardy than three people who can't answer the clues. You, know, you get those long pauses, boop, 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 boop. Um, it's bad TV. So Jeopardy's never trying to trick anyone. We want correct responses. We are dying for correct responses. Uh, and we want um, high-powered, high-talented contestants that look like America. And it's just a matter of of how you do that. And uh, as you say, part of it is the clue selection. You know, We're a self-perpetuating canon of what Jeopardy people know. And for a long time, that was a lot of white male authors, and so we perpetuated a lot of academic problems with what that canon looks like. And uh, how do you pre- push those boundaries without leading to a lot of boop 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 boop? And you know, how do you you know? And a lot of it is hiring. Let's you know, our, for a long time, our writing staff looked a lot like me, middle-aged guys who carried around the Guinness Book of World Records as a kid. You know, you want to broaden that, that, last that question
1: base too. For me, before I turn it over to you guys, um, like a lot of people who use Twitter. You sent out some tweets um, that you later regretted and those resurfaced periodically. Um, what is your advice for Jeopardy contestants or anyone else playing around with social media these days? And do you still use Twitter or anything else?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, much less in the Elon Musk era. I feel like my Twitter track record's pretty good, but you know, it's just 10 years of saying the first thing you thought of to your friends. You know, It's pretty easy to find someone saying dumb things they should have thought twice about. Um, and that, I think that's happened to anybody who's been on Twitter for ten years. It's actually something we talked about with contestants now. And I, you know, I reached out to the show I don't know five, ten years ago, and said, you know, every time I talk to contestants, particularly like women who go on the show, they just have to like grind through all the online awfulness, you know, that for a couple of weeks thereafter. Like we should really be telling people who are naive about this kind of stuff here's what you look forward to, you may want to, you know, you may not want to read the comments, you may want to lock down your social for a week, or you may want to promote it in these ways, you know, we we just want contestants to kind of be aware, and... Do they show up aware at this point? I think so, I mean, at, at this point, at this point, people are less surprised by that, but you, really, it's it's unprecedented for them, like, they've read stories about someone who suddenly became the main character on Twitter, but that's different than when it happens to you, just because you did some two-second thing on a game show that went you viral.
1: scrub your social media as soon as you enter <laughs> the contest. All right, let's go to some audience questions. Uh, it's 2023, um, so I have to ask you an AI question. How will chat GPT
2: affect Jeopardy? Well, I've already lost on Jeopardy to an AI. You know. So I think, it's, I think we already know that it's been a decade where humans are not as good at buzzing in on Jeopardy clues than, uh, than question-answering algorithms. But you know, we, we still do the Olympics even though trucks are faster than people. I don't, I don't think that invalidates the game at all. I spent, uh, a couple weeks ago, I spent a few hours typing Jeopardy clues into ChatGPT. It is very good. It's, it's probably better than any human, even just on paper if you take away the buzzer. Watson's Edge was, was speed related. Um, ChatGPT just has the knowledge breadth of any good human player or more. It can still be fooled. Like I was formulating Jeopardy style stuff and you could get ChatGPT to be very confidently wrong. But again, humans on Jeopardy are very like confidently wrong all the time. it hallucinating
1: when it's wrong. <laughs> is that what they say, hallucinating? They say it's hallucinating, I like, know it's wrong. Um, <laughs> what is the craziest answer you've heard a contestant say? This is the most popular question we have today.
2: The craziest answer? Like,
1: uh, hmm. I mean, the, the, cra- the f- most famous Game show answer is in the butt, right?
2: Right. There are there are a few Jeopardy equivalents of the old Bobby Banks yeah. in the butt. Um, at one point, somebody says, "There's something about a, a, a an answer about a." They're all very gentle because it's Jeopardy. There's something about a trio, and somebody buzzes in and says threesome. I think at a, at a very inopportune moment, somebody says, "Somebody says rabbit punch." There's a clip of somebody saying, I, "I've I've done one of these where uh, the clue was." Uh, uh, a long-handled garden instrument that also means a loose, an immoral pleasure seeker. And I buzz in to say, what is a hoe? And I, 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 immediately, I realize immediately it is not what is a hoe. <laughs> but it's too late. You know, like the, the avalanche is already going, and I say what is a No, it turns out what is a rake? What is a rake is correct.
1: What is the hard, I don't know how you measure this, what is the hardest question you've had on Jeopardy? You must get this question
2: a lot though. Well, again, you know, we are not trying. I think the misconception is that we're trying to to trick or uh, stump these people. No, the game only fails when they are not tricked or stumped when they can when they can get to the bottom of every clue. But that said, we do sometimes gauge things wrong. And now that I see the clues in the morning in advance, it often leads to spirited discussions about what is too hard, what are they going to get wrong, what are they going to get right. We had Aung San Suu Kyi, the former uh, Burmese president. Wait, is she still president? No, she was deposed, I think. And as a response, and I was like, what if they give partial names? Like, Burma doesn't have surnames and first names. What if they mistakenly say Su Chi or An San? The writers are like, it'll never happen. And I'm like, please, just tell me what to do if this comes up. I do not want to be out there twisting in the wind on this. It won't happen. Sure enough, somebody buzzes in and says, who is An San? And I just like do some death stare at the writers. (laughs) And they're like, okay, we'll take it. For the Masters tournament we're doing right now, the, we have put in clues that I thought were impossibly difficult. And these haven't aired yet, so I don't want to name check anybody. But you know, I'm like, what a 19th century neoclassical cabinet maker? No, nobody's gonna get this. And then these players just confidently, boop, you know, they know everything. Um, so it's, it's, sometimes it's hard to make it too hard for the 19th best. 19th century neoclassical cabinet maker? This is the kind of thing that I <laughs> said, this, all is all not, this is not gonna play. I do not have that one available. Well, which one, I guess, is the question. There's so many good ones.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, well put.
1: Does the I'm not sure about the the technicality here. Does the law preventing contestants who knows a show staffer complicate your relationship with your Jeopardy friend?
2: You That's actually that true. I,
1: I think i are a little confused. So there there are rules about yeah. fraternizing. With if you
2: try out for Jeopardy, you have to say, I'm not related. I, I'm not, I don't work for Sony or any of these other affiliates. I, I don't know anyone who does. If you have any relationship with someone there, you have to disclose and it'll disqualify you. We, the, uh, I've seen contestants actually, we've started a show and had somebody recognize a contestant's surname and have to swap somebody out at the last minute because it turns out, oh, your dad's my lawyer. This is a, this is a terrible look. Game shows are still uh, regulated by the FCC because of the scandals in the 50s. If something untoward, ha- there's, there's a whole movie about it. If something untoward happened on Wheel of Fortune, it wouldn't just be on the cover of TV Guide, like there could be congressional hearings again and people could go to jail, so we take these things seriously. And when Alex was hosting, this was not a big deal because Alex had not spent 20 years out there mingling with uh, America's trivia intelligentsia. You know, he, he barely went to poker night, I think. Um, but I do know a lot of these people. And so we've kind of had to think about, well, what are the guidelines? Like, if you met Ken incidentally five years ago, that's fine. You know, if you've got an email conversation with him, just disclose that and we'll make sure that's, you know, once it's been disclosed, that's kind of fine. It's, an evil, it's a level playing field. We just don't want things to come out. So, so it are seems there, like do you there's have to a, turn
1: down drinks or dinners. Like I can't, I can't hang. Uh,
2: there are Jeopardy ex contestants who are friends of mine who now I feel like I shouldn't hang out with because um, you know they, we might have them back in a in a future tournament and it's a bad look if I've had dinner with you but not you or you. I mean, luckily some of those people are James Holtzauer, so hanging out with them is not a huge social loss. <laughs> and
1: now a question from James Holzhauer.
2: Um, <laughs> Wait, that's his music, he's walking into the ring. How can I watch
1: your original 74 game run? I literally can't find episodes anywhere. I'm too young to have watched them live. This is someone who wants in. This is, this is the rare young Jeopardy fan. This
2: always makes me feel very old. Kids actually like it, it's kind of bimodal. Young people like Jeopardy, then at some point in your life, you know, at 7 o'clock you're busy you know, making dinner or driving your kids somewhere or coming home from work and you do not build your life around Jeopardy or Will anymore. But right around your 50s, oh, here it comes. <laughs> Here comes evening game shows. Um, So kids do like the show. Yeah, this is related to the affiliate problem. They do not want, you know, uh, the people who air Jeopardy don't want easy streaming access to old shows. We do run, um, I think this this is coming. This is the future, obviously. Jeopardy On Demand is coming. Pluto TV, which is one of these ad-supported free streamers, uh, has a library of shows we rotate through. Um, So probably they have some of, they're probably airing some of my old shows now. Um, is BitTorrent still a thing? <laughs> yeah. I think there might be ways. Yarr. Right, Ken, Ken is
1: is not telling you to pirate old Jeopardy episodes.
2: Absolutely not. I could get fired for that.
1: You mentioned how diehard fans dislike changes in Jeopardy. We've talked about that a bunch. How does your gratitude towards these
2: fans compare to resenting their reluctance to accept change? <laughs> no, th- I don't want to say there's resentment because I'm one of them. Like, I grew up watching the show and the thing I love about it is the comforting, Rhythms of it, like I to this day, I you know I love watching my own host. I enjoy hosting, but I just want to hear Alex out there. You know, I'm I, I feel like hologram Alex should be hosting Jeopardy. Quite honestly, so I'm a traditionalist myself, and I'm deeply grateful to people who make it part of their evenings because I am I'm one of you.
1: What do you think of the professionalization of Jeopardy? This is also what we've been talking about. Um, Claire McNair's book says that was a very polarizing change.
2: It's a theme, we keep talking about change and whether it's good or not. Yeah, I mean, it is the future. Um, a, t- a team can't decide they're not going to play Moneyball because it turns out Moneyball is the way to play. In this case, you know, game shows have traditionally been kind of a, a lark, you know? You grow up watching these normal folks who, you know, it's just some uh, salesman from Pasadena and suddenly they've won a, a dining set and that's nice, you know? But the thing about the professionalization of Jeopardy is these are still normal people. You know, it's still The dynamic's still the same. Regular folks who have never been on TV are coming on and winning a dining set, and it's a nice thing for them. Um, the only difference is they worked a lot harder. And I think that's fine, because that's a level playing field too. You know? Anybody has access to these online archives of, of Jeopardy! clues, it's, um, it's free resource, and we want everybody to get better. We, we want
1: to lift all boats. How do you feel when a long standing champion like Mateo Roach or Matt Amodio, sorry if I pronounced Matt's name wrong, is taken down? Is it a melancholy moment or is it exciting?
2: Both. You know, when I lost um, my last game, I remember this kind of feeling of relief like, oh, like I I know how the story is going to end. Like this has been a very tense few months. And I I didn't realize it until the tension was gone. Um, And the audience kind of, you know, the audience gave a big standing ovation. And I thought they were cheering for the woman who had beaten me, and I, and I did it too. I was like, yeah, you know, that was, you know, that was great. And it wasn't until later that I was like, oh, at least some of that might have been like for the end of the run. You know, they're, they're cheering for the 74-game streak. So, you know, an upset like that is two things. It's an amazing win for a player who never thought they were going to. And you can see it on their face. Nobody likes to show up for Jeopardy and hear they're playing against a 30-game champ. So you can always see the shock just I can't believe they're outside of their body. They cannot believe this has just happened to them, and that's just a lovely moment. But as somebody who's been in both, I can't believe I just won, and uh, oh, it's over. You know, I feel both emotions at once. Will Jeopardy be affected by the writer strike? Jeopardy does use guild writers. We have a team of WGA writers, and they are the stars of Jeopardy. We could not do that show without them. And it would be, you know, the quality people associate with Jeopardy is largely their skill, their voice, their precision as to making sure these questions are ironclad factually and will play well, enjoyed both by the audience and by the very smart contestants. It's such a hard job and they make it happen at incredible volumes, you know, a half hour of Jeopardy has 61 clues plus one or two spares in every category just in case something goes wrong. So 70, 80 clues a night. Um, It's just a a remarkable workload. And luckily, uh, the strike being called in May, we had already locked games for the rest of the season by the time the strike was called. So you're good until when, how how much? End of the season. um, We have a hiatus for the studios to come to their senses and actually pay writers what they're worth, and I hope that happens.
1: There is this thing, I don't know how real it is, but there's a discussion in in, in the negotiations about whether or not AI can be used to produce scripts. Um, I'm pretty dubious about that in many cases. In this particular case, it really seems like it's interesting. you could do a lot with ChatGPT and AI and... and maybe not replace writers, but certainly augment them or, or reduce the workload, whatever it is.
2: Is that, is that a possibility? Yeah, because Jeopardy clues have a canon, there is a real, you know, there's a big corpus that you can rely on to see here's, here are the patterns that make for a clue that feels Jeopardy and a response that works for Jeopardy, and here's what doesn't, and even, a you know, you could train a very naive AI to do some of that. I still feel like much is missing because Jeopardy clues will still surprise me. Every day I'll see a category that kind of has a funny format or conceit or you know, is a pastiche of other things and I will, you know, you don't laugh out loud at a Jeopardy clue, but whatever, uh, a sensible inner chuckle. And I will have one of those SICs multiple times on, on a good Jeopardy board. And I'm skeptical that ChatGPT can give me those sensible inner chuckles that viewers crave.
1: No, pro-human. Pro-human. Do you think you'll host Jeopardy
2: until you retire? Until I retire from Jeopardy? Yes, guaranteed. (laughs) It'll be the same show, in fact. Uh, Alex hosted for 38 years, and I started at 48, which means I'm very unlikely to equal his run. I would be 86. But it's a, I mean, on any level, it's a good gig. You know, we do five shows in a day, which means the host of Jeopardy, and right now we've got two, so I'm only doing half the lift, um, works maybe 46 days a year. I mean, that's, I don't see how. My union did a great job. I'm, I'm very glad that I could work 46 days a year and make a living. It's a great side hustle, even if you've got a sitcom about a cat cafe. Uh, the, um, and then, but the real thing is just that I'm still associated with this show that meant so much to me as a kid. But I had a sense of closure when I lost on Jeopardy, but the next day, waking up in my hotel, realizing, oh, I don't get to play Jeopardy today. And I probably never will again because it's one to a customer. I mean, occasionally, you know, every five or ten years, a tournament maybe. But my favorite thing was, was over, you know. And now it's the equivalent of the athlete who gets to be the third base coach or, or the halftime show. You know, I still get to go to Jeopardy. I still get to hang out with my people. Um, and it's an honor to be associated with the show that even as a ten-year-old changed my life and, and made me who I am. Got a great gig. You're good at it. It was a thrill to ask you questions here today. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you, sir.
0: That's it for today's episode. Thanks to Ken and Peter for the talk. This episode of Crosscut Talks was produced by Seth Halloran and engineered by Resty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Ann O'Dowd. Madeline Happold managed our audience engagement. And you can subscribe to Crosscut Talks wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please review us. We want to know what you think. For the latest political, environmental and cultural news from the Pacific Northwest, visit Crosscut.com. And if you would like to support the work we do at Crosscut, whether it's live events we host or the in-depth reporting we do every day, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to on-demand programming on Seattle's PBS station KCTS 9. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Paris Jackson. We'll be back soon with another conversation.